gentlemen another great episode of the sitting second podcast i am john schofield uh your host uh from the naval academy alumni association and foundation joining me is chris cervello uh chris cervello actually playing a little road game uh this week supporting a client up here in dc we were able to break bread last night uh down in southeast with one bashan man uh, of ProVision Advisors, so that was awesome. As we record, it is October 31st, 2023, uh, Halloween. Uh, I came to work today, Chris Cervello. I'm not wearing it right now. Um, I know you're a big costume guy. I had Tide Pods on my Sing Second vest and a fishing pole, and I was a podcaster. Um, it's extremely witty, particularly because I think so. Um, but all joking aside... <laughs> <laughs> All joking aside, uh, busy week around here. It was a busy week uh, just last week. We'll recap that. Uh, but for you, another uh, victory on the golf course before you uh, rolled up here to D.C., eh? Yes. Uh, fun uh, fun couple days with the guys up there. Uh, but, yeah, like you said, uh, up in D.C. for a couple days of work. And then, as I mentioned last week, uh, our couples tournament uh, fingers crossed that uh, my wife and I don't kill each other. Um, so uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. Yeah, that's going to be a touch and go situation um, for sure. Uh, the golf up here is probably coming close to an end, at least for your traditional fall golf. Uh, the temperature dropped thirty degrees up here in the last two days, so I think it's going to be pretty hard to get out there, particularly if the temperature stays down. Uh, temperature looks awesome uh, for this coming weekend at Temple. Uh, another shout out to Colin Schofield, who I'm very excited about spending some time with. As you haven't heard me brag on him before, Colin, my son, is a sophomore at Temple, writes for the Temple newspaper, uh, covers the women's field hockey team for the Temple newspaper, covered the football game against SMU a couple of weeks ago, and SMU got absolutely shit stomped by SMU. Um, so his recap was very informative, uh, particularly his summary of all the scores that Temple had, which was zero. Um, but all joking aside, Chris, and, and I like to throw it over to you, you know, from what you've gleaned from Eric and Keenan and Bill Wagner on the Navy football podcast. I talked to Scott Strathmeyer last week and for, for this football team, and I know that so much of our sports lives in the fall revolve around football. Um, a lot of people are really hoping that, you know, despite the new coaching staff, despite the tough start against Notre Dame, that this is a team that can get to a bowl. And when I talked to Scott Strassmeyer, he said, hey, you know, six wins is definitely possible, but they need to get to six wins before Army uh, because uh, the bowl selections come out before the Army-Navy game. Um, so they can't go into that army game, you know, needing that sixth win to be bowl eligible or else there might not be any chairs left in the musical chairs routine. So the next three weeks, you have a temple team that's horrible, um, playing without Kurt Warner's son under center and just coming off of a 55 to nothing trouncing to SMU. Then you have UAB, which is at the bottom of the standings in the American and then ECU, which is the very bottom of the standings 
in the uh, American Conference. So really, three wins here in the next three weeks against very beatable teams gets you bowl eligibility, and that gets everyone around here, the military bowl on December 27th here at Navy Marine Corps Stadium. What do you think our chances are? I, th- I think our chances are very good. Um, and I think as fans, um, that should be the expectation. Uh, what you just laid out is what this team should be able to accomplish. And I would say that if they fall short of that as fans, we should be disappointed, right? I mean, let, let's just be very honest. I mean, the expectation is, is that you get on a little bit of a roll, you win those three games, and then you go into Army, take care of business. And suddenly the season that at times – uh, was a bit uh, ugly and unpredictable. Um, you, you know, it was a success for the new coaching staff, and they're they're off and running now. Look, if you're a, if you're an athlete, you know that you don't look too much further than the the uh, you know week's competition. So right now, we got to focus on Temple. Um, we've got a quarterback room that's in a little bit of disarray, as we've talked about, and as Bill and Keenan and Eric talk about each and every week. Um, this is a good week for them to get their act together to build some consistency and, uh, you, you know, begin to uh, not only win the game, but get some wins within the win um, and build confidence. Um, it's also, as I as I was just looking, uh, the Temple plays, uh, Navy plays Temple on Saturday, and then the Cowboys come a-calling uh, on Sunday against the Eagles. So I'm hoping for two wins in the link this weekend. Uh, that would be an amazing weekend in the Cervello household. We were actually looking at it that if the Phillies made the World Series this weekend up in Philly would have been a perfect storm in that the so let me see if I'm getting this right. I think the Flyers play Thursday night. No, no, no. The Flyers play a home game Friday night. There's the Navy game that day. There's a Sixers game that night. Um, and then you said the Cowboys play the Eagles on Sunday. And somewhere in there, if the Phillies made the World Series, you would have had a home World Series game as well. Uh, so definitely a pretty wild weekend in store for Philadelphia sports fans. Unfortunately, that never seems to translate to Lincoln Financial Field when we play Temple. It's always a very ill-populated um, occasion there um because it's just tough you know you hear you are at the light, later stages of the semester the temple students you know they're not physically very close to the lincoln financial field location um yeah you know, so it, it's just one of those tough things where navy's going to have to perform in front of probably a, a very parse crowd sparse crowd um i should say but a lot of the crowd will be Navy fans. Um, yeah. I think we've got about 50 to 70 alums or parents club members who are lining up a, uh, a little tailgate in Cristovello. I think your liver is probably going to kick at you here in oh, our man. very favorite Jet Row lot uh, right oh. there next to Lincoln Financial Field. They're opening yeah. up Jet Row to allow for a chapter tailgate, a little parents club action uh, you know, shout out to Rob Hubert, who has been trying to poison our livers for years from the class of 96 with Irish car bombs in the jet row lot. But it should be pretty cool. We're going to go up there on Friday. Uh, Jeff Webb and I are going to participate in the largest student run Special Olympics event on campus in this country at Villanova. And we're going to talk to class of 88 grad Matt Aaron here in a minute. 
uh, to get the lowdown on that and, and his role as the president and CEO of Special Olympics of Pennsylvania. That's going to be a great event Friday. And then there's a Founders Day dinner uh, Friday night uh, where the Travis Manon Foundation is giving an award to the Alumni Association and Jeff Webb. And then uh, Saturday morning before the 2 p.m. kick, uh, we're going to be tailgating it up and getting after it. Um, so we really can't wait for that. We have a great, great uh, chapter there. Rob Bender, the president of the chapter uh, graduate and his son and a bunch of supporters, you know, with Tom and Ryan Mannion uh, putting on a great event Friday night. We're really excited. So, you know, Chris, if uh, the tournament with Juan doesn't go well, there's always room for you up here on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And I, I may have to take you up on, on that. We'll, uh, we'll know, I think, early Friday morning. Uh, if we're going to make it through the weekend, but uh, definitely looking forward to uh, a Navy win at Temple, as I said, and uh, look forward to hearing about all the, the great stuff that uh, the alumni team is going to put together. I mean, Philly's such a great city, right? We only think about it in, in terms of Army Navy, but the times that you do get to go up there, whether to play Temple or any of the other schools, um, you, you know, in, in any sport, uh, Philly fans come out, Philly Navy fans come out. And so uh, I know you're going to have a great time. And you mentioned at the top, the weather is uh, is just about right. It's sweater weather. Uh, I brought my ProVision sweater to wear here in D.C. I don't get to wear it very often yeah. in, uh, in uh, Florida. And it's great looking out the window here at my hotel and looking at the leaves. And man, you, you guys are going to have a great weekend. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be utterly awesome. Um you know, and, and just earlier this month, Secretary of the Navy and Class of 83 grad Carlos Del Toro uh, was up in Philadelphia marking Philadelphia Navy Week, uh, which was really awesome. He gathered a bunch of grads and parents clubs and chapter members and talked to them, you know, really just an hour of, of just fireside chat. He talked about um, he talked about Ukraine and Russia. He talked about politics. He talked about the congressional holds on flag nominations it was it was an extremely candid, um, just a very open view for grads to talk to a service secretary about what's going on. Um, you know, out of respect for the secretary, I won't share too many details. It's not like he was you know violating OPSEC, but it was a very blunt and, and and frank conversation with people about what the state of the Pentagon is and how the Navy is doing and his faith, you know, in the fleet and Marine forces based on you know the you know the the service of Naval Academy grads and all service members across the nation. So great to be back up there in Philly. I don't know if SecNav will be up there again uh, this time, but he's certainly making the rounds around here, particularly with us having the new building. Uh, as we go to break, I, I will make one last reference to last week's Board of Trustees and Board of Directors meeting, our first ever joint meeting of the Foundation Board of Directors and the Alumni Association Board of Trustees. Uh, it only happens two to three times a year. We brought all of the trustees uh, and directors in uh, to get briefings from the Alumni Association of Foundation, and it was a great success. The weather cooperated. The building was awesome. Uh, so again, if you're a trustee or, or a member of the board of directors listening to this podcast, thank you for being here last week, and thank you for your continued service to your alma mater. We're going to go to break. When we come back, you're going to have great interviews with Matt Aaron, class of 88. He's going to talk to you about Special Olympics and what's going on at the Annapolis of the North Villanova University on Friday. And then we're going to talk to YouTube sensation, class of 82 grad, former Sing seconder, Ward Carroll, uh, talking about his success using YouTube as basically his 
living right now. It's pretty amazing. He's always been entertaining. He's, he always has great content. Recommend you follow his channel and we'll have a great interview with him right after the break. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back and it's time for our weekly interviews. We have some good ones today. Uh, we have Ward Carroll from the great class of the 82. He's going to talk to us about how he turned just a YouTube hobby into a million dollar enterprise. And we are so happy right now to be joined by class of 88 grad Matt Aaron. Uh, Matt Aaron, uh, like I said, graduated in 88, went on to aviation from there, completed between active duty and reserve duty, um, a career in the Navy, but at the same time started, um, I believe just about 15 years ago, November will be his 15th anniversary as the CEO and president of Special Olympics of Pennsylvania. And um, as I said in the intro, Jeff Webb and I, ladies and gentlemen, are heading up for the Temple game this coming weekend. Uh, but Friday of that weekend, we are gonna participate with Matt Aaron in the Special Olympic ceremony there at Villanova University. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know how I feel about Villanova. So after all of that preamble, Matt, Aaron, thank you so much for bring, uh, coming aboard the Sing Second podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, John. I'm doing great and uh, really looking forward to our fall festival. Yeah, so I'm going to ask you about that here in a second. But first and foremost, I, I'd love to get the, you know, the stories, you know, of how how you ended up where you are out there, and then how the Naval Academy played a role. You have now found yourself in the service of our nation, really, um, you know, as the president and CEO of Special Olympics of Pennsylvania. You know, from your time as a midshipman, walk us through how you ended up where you are today and what lessons you took with you from the small engineering school on the banks of the Severn River. Yeah, it's it's been a great journey, John. Um, when I graduated, I uh, service-selected NFO, went down to Pensacola, and um, was fortunate enough to, to select A6s from there. So I went to Oceana. And between my, my initial time in Pensacola and then ended up in, in Virginia Beach, I was, I was feeling like there was something missing. And for I, I grew up on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, this little town called Snow Hill. So for a kid from the Eastern Shore of Maryland, I, I felt like there was something missing. Yeah, my, my career in the Navy was about service, but I was missing that connection to the community. And, and I kind of noticed it in Pensacola. And then when I got to Virginia Beach, um, I said, I need to do something about this. So even though I was you know, busy and, and on active duty and, and certainly serving in that capacity, uh, that's where I got my start doing volunteer work. So initially I became a, a big brother with the Big Brother Big Sister program. Um, and everywhere I went in my my active duty Navy career, I got involved in something, uh, different organizations, uh, different activities, different missions, but all you know grassroots basic um, volunteering, and was really finding a lot of fulfillment in that. And at the same time, a lot of my, my colleagues were getting out and going to these um, great business schools like Harvard and Wharton and. Um, I was I was grappling with well, where do I want to go with my career? Am I going to stay on active duty? Do I want to do something else? And the MBA sounded great, but initially I couldn't figure out the what comes next piece of it. The the MBA sounded really intriguing, but I didn't I didn't want to go be an, an investment banker or a consultant, which ultimately I ended up doing. Um, <laughs> but um, 
over over time, I started hearing about and and learning about programs uh, with a focus in nonprofit management. And so from that start with the volunteer work, uh, that kind of planted the seed. And then um, uh, I decided that I wanted to to leave active duty and pursue a nonprofit management career uh, as my career track. And so it was a different kind of service, but really the same same focus. And I decided that I didn't want to wait for 20 years to get started, that I wanted to do it right away. Um, but I was I was also really blessed in my Navy career with a lot of amazing opportunities. So uh, I mentioned that I was an A6BN, uh, went through training in Virginia Beach, joined VA 55 initially, uh, which was only around for a few months before it decommissioned. And then I, I went to VA 85, uh, laid in, uh, 1990, right before Desert Storm started. So I checked in there in early December, um, went home for Christmas, and then came back and deployed on the America December 28th. And my uh, my first deployment after after the RAG, after training, was, was Desert Storm. Uh, so flew about 100 hours of combat missions in Desert Storm from the America uh, came back. We were we were the last carrier out, so we were the first carrier to go back. Um, so did another another deployment with a squadron, and then I got picked up for the uh, Navy co-op program with Test Pilot School in Monterey, and so I checked out of my my squadron in '93 and went out to Monterey for a year and a half and worked on a, an Aero Engineering Masters, and then went to Pax River and went through uh, the Navy's Test Pilot School, um, and, and those were just incredible experiences. You know the the leadership lessons the uh, all, all of the experience from those opportunities have, you know, really uh, formed who who I am. Uh, amazing opportunities to fly a bunch of different airplanes, and and I, I tell people that I I optimized my Navy career because I I squeezed in twelve years of active duty. I squeezed in I think about as much as you uh, can often squeeze into <laughs> to twenty years. So um, flew flew all kinds of different airplanes. Uh, finished uh, test pilot school, went out to VX-9 at China Lake, uh, did some weapons test work out there, which was uh, another great experience. Uh, but that's where I did a, a career transition and became an aerospace engineering duty officer uh, and went to the National Reconnaissance Office for my last two years of active duty and had the opportunity there to build, um, for anybody who's not familiar, the, the NRO builds our, our nation's spy satellites. So Jumped over to the space oh. side of things and built satellites for two years, which was uh, an amazing opportunity, and got to work. Uh, there's well, so so Matt, like I, it, I hate to interrupt you, but it, it it bears repeating. And on our pod last week, we talked to Phil Hoffman, the longtime photographer for Navy Athletics, you know, who graduated in 1973 with a degree in ocean engineering, and and he's been a photographer since 1982 not necessarily a translation of ocean engineering to photography. And now, you know, with all of your aero background, you know, arguably one of the hardest majors here, one of the most technically challenging career fields out in the Navy. And, and did you ever along that route, despite the fact your mentions of, of service and volunteerism along your route, did you ever think you'd end up in the shoes you're in today? Interestingly, I did, but, but, all of the Navy experiences made me or prepared me better for what I'm doing today. So 
kind of connecting all those dots together. You know, when I was in China Lake working at VX9, I was working with the United Way in the community doing the day of caring out there and working with the executive director. And, and that was when the the earlier part of my story came came together when I found out about those MBA programs with focuses in nonprofit management. And, and when I, at that point in time, I started sort of shifting my thinking to, yeah, I, I do think I want to leave active duty and pursue a different career. Um, and, and so when I got to the National Reconnaissance Office, I started looking into schools and applying and, and ultimately made that decision. Um, I, I ended up attending Yale and went to their school of management because at the time they were the most well-recognized program in the country for nonprofit management. And um, the experience at Yale was a was a really interesting one. Um, Yale's a great school. I got a lot out of that experience. It's a good business school. You know, the the focus on nonprofit management was great. But the thing that Yale really made me appreciate was the Naval Academy. Um, that that experience of being there, again, getting a really great education, but but lacking the leadership and the discipline that I got at Navy really made me appreciate what I had in Annapolis. Um, and so I, I went on from from there. Um, like I said earlier, I, I be careful what you what you think or what you ask for. I always said I didn't want to be an eye banker or a consultant. When I graduated from Yale, I became a consultant. I went to uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, worked in DC for uh, about three years on their government practice doing doing management consulting with the uh, intelligence community. And um, while I was there, I had the opportunity to connect with the global headquarters of, of Special Olympics and Tim Shriver, the, the chairman. I ended up joining um, Special Olympics as the chief of half, chief of staff for the global organization in 2005 and spent three years there, uh, which was a, a really great learning um, opportunity to learn the the entire global organization, how it works around the world. Um, but I also knew that just as many of your jobs in the Navy, you know, prepare you for command, you know, they're not the ultimate job, they're the, the preparation ground. It was the same thing with that role. I knew when I got there that it was a great opportunity, but it was not where I wanted to spend my career. I, I knew that I wanted to be a CEO. So just like you know, when I was a plebe at the Naval Academy and my uh, my second class in first, he started pounding into my head that my my goal in life was to become a commanding officer. Um, my, my goal in going to Special Olympics was to be a CEO and run a, a nonprofit organization. So I, I did that that great job at the headquarters for three years. And then in 2008, the opportunity in Pennsylvania opened up. Uh, and, and every state program is its own 501c3. So they're, they're separate organizations. I had to uh, apply and interview with the board just like you know any other candidate would. Um, but I, I was particularly interested in the opportunity here in Pennsylvania uh, for two reasons. One, Pennsylvania is a big state. I wanted, a, I wanted an opportunity to run a bigger program. And number two, they were, they were in distress. Um, financially, they were, they were in trouble. And I wanted that opportunity to come in and turn an organization around, not just come in and be a, a caretaker for somebody who, you know, retired and had built a great program. And the, be the best I could do would be screw it up. Um, so that's <laughs> that's why I came here in November of 2008, 15 years ago. And it's been an amazing journey. And uh, a lot has gone into turning the organization around, which we've done and and now trying to grow it and and 
build it as a as a leader in the global movement. And every day, the lessons that I learned at Navy are, are things that apply to how I, I run this organization. Well, help me contextualize what we're going to see. Um, well, either today or tomorrow as this pod comes out, it'll either be on Thursday or Friday. Um, and as I said in the intro, Jeff Webb and I are heading up there to be with you um, for the opening ceremonies of the Special Olympics of Pennsylvania for the fall festival there at Villanova. And, you know, I, I just remember as I arrived at Villanova site unseen, licking my wounds, getting kicked out of West Point, the idea of service being driven into me by Villanova was independent of the NROTC program, but just, you know, the idea that the, you know, that the Augustinian order, you know, inculcates into every single student there is that, you know, service, it doesn't necessarily have to be to the Catholic church, it's to the community. And one of the first things I got involved in was to volunteer for Special Olympics. Um, now, from what I've heard, the Special Olympics event at Villanova on Friday and through the weekend is the largest Special Olympics event in America. Is that true? And like, help the audience understand the, the totality of what you're going to be managing this weekend. Now, Fall Fest at Villanova is amazing. It's not the largest event. It's the largest student-run Special Olympics event. And so, again, this all ties back to leadership, which certainly resonates with anybody from the Naval Academy. Uh, the Fall Fest committee at Villanova is amazing. And, and as I look at the, the young people who are on that committee, uh, I, I try to think back, which has been quite a few years since, since I was that age, but I don't remember being that mature and that squared away at their age. But we have a, a committee at Villanova that is more than 100 students, and it, it has a six-person management team that literally works around the, uh, around the entire 12-month calendar to plan for and then execute this event. And so... Uh, to put it in perspective for the audience, uh, Fall Festival is our culminating fall competition for the entire state. We will have almost 1,100 athletes from uh, all over the state of Pennsylvania coming together at Villanova for three days of competition in six different sports. Uh, we'll have bocce, flag football, long distance running, walking, powerlifting, soccer, and volleyball. And all of it is organized and executed by these students. And, and they just do an amazing job. Uh, and if I could could share anything or inspire anyone out of this, this podcast, uh, I can't do justice. Even, even as excited as I am by what's happening, there's no way in, in the words of a podcast that I can capture what will take place at Villanova because you can't adequately describe pure joy in words. Um, but Special Olympics is joy. And in fact, we're the only organization I've ever found that has the word joy written in our mission statement. And so I'd encourage anybody listening to, if you haven't been to a Special Olympics event before, go find one in your state and go see it in person because the, the joy of our athletes is inspiring. And so here in Pennsylvania, Fall Fest is that culminating event for our fall season in those six sports that I mentioned. But around the, the year, we have more than a thousand competitions just here in Pennsylvania in 22 different sports. We've got three seasons. So we're a, we're a year round organization. And, and when people ask me, you know, when's the next Special Olympics? I just look at my watch and say, it's probably starting in a couple hours because there's always <laughs> something happening somewhere. 
And so I'd encourage people to go out and find it in your 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 own backyard uh, and go witness the the joy of Special Olympics in person. Well, and if you're an Annapolis listener, a little shout out to the Navy, uh, Naval Academy Public Affairs Office and MAG and Miriam Stanichich there, uh, who runs MAG and our community relations program at Navy in the spring. You know, there's a big Special Olympics event right there, um, you know, it, right behind Michelson and Chauvenet. It, it's a wonderful event. And, and I echo what Matt is saying, that the importance of giving back in these type of events uh, is just so critical. Um, Matt, th- this podcast started as a focus on the physical mission. You know, we originally called it Six Second Sports because we, we loved the idea of the stories of success that came out of the challenges you see in the physical mission, you know, upon the fields of friendly strife or sown the seeds of victory. How important are these events for these athletes? The, the opportunity to compete, the opportunity to be athletic, to challenge yourself in that regard, you know, as you remember, and, and maybe you played a varsity sport or maybe you were just an intramural warrior, but the idea of the physical mission from 1988 to present day is still that, the lessons you learn on the athletic field have direct impact on your success going forward. For these athletes, the 11,000 athletes that are going to be descending upon Villanova under your leadership, um, how, how important you know, are, are these games? John, I, I, I run a sports organization, but what I really do is transform lives. That's why I love what I do. That's why I do what I do is, is I want to make a difference in transforming lives. And I, and I do it through the mechanism of sports. And so one of the things I tell people a lot is special Olympics athletes don't want to be special. They just want to be like everybody else. And unfortunately I was very blessed. I had a lot of opportunities coming to Navy was an amazing experience and if you looked at my career and said, this guy didn't do something good, then, then you would look at me and say, that guy's, you know, he messed it up. In many cases, our athletes have spent their entire lives with people telling them that they can't, oh, you have an intellectual disability, therefore you can't even try this, or you shouldn't, you can't do this, you can't succeed. And Special Olympics is that organization that says yes. Yes, you can. And so our athletes through the vehicle of sports get the same thing that, that midshipmen get or that anybody gets out of being in sports. The self-discipline, the teamwork, the camaraderie, all of those things translate. And so, yes, I get excited when an athlete comes up to me and, and is jumping up and down for joy because they just got a gold medal or they just set a personal best in powerlifting or, or whatever their sports story is. That's great. But what I really get excited about is when an athlete tells me that they just went out and they they um, got their first apartment and they're now living on their own independently, or they got their driver's license, or they're going to college. You know, we have Special Olympics athletes who go to college. Um, whatever it is, whatever their dream is, the the fact that they have participated in Special Olympics and the role that that plays in giving them the self-confidence or the ability to go do that, those are the stories that really get me get me excited. Or, or the athletes who tell me that uh, they got inspired and they went out and they lost 150 pounds, which one of our athletes from Delaware County who is on actually the committee, we have athletes serving in leadership roles. We have athletes who serve on the Fall Fest committee and one of them during COVID 
lost 150 pounds because he got his act together and got active. The, those are the stories that inspire me. Well, count me as as inspired, and I, I I know that I speak for the CEO when I say we can't wait to to get up there and and participate in this with you um, on Friday. You know, something about the Temple game on Saturday seems completely insignificant now, and you know what? That's a good thing. My last question for you, Matt, is the same question I give everyone. Um, you know, in your words only, and that's there's always a different answer. What makes the Naval Academy special? Um, for you, and and if you had to recommend it to, you know, any prospective student out there, you know, what would you say is the secret sauce that the Naval Academy delivers? Boy, I wish I I knew how to unbundle that secret sauce because um, I I'd be uh, I'd be rich if I could unbundle it and sell it. But but the secret sauce um, is all bundled up in in the mission and. Um, and the leadership and and building the leadership and the service uh, into the mission. And, and so uh, again, for me, I didn't I didn't really appreciate it because um, I went I went to the Naval Academy first and then I went to the Naval Postgraduate School and then I went to the Naval Test Pilot School. So I had all these great Navy educational experiences. and I didn't appreciate any of that until I got to Yale and said, wow, this is what I really got. This is the foundation. Um, so that that's why it means so much to me. Well, Matt Aaron, we thank you for being truly an alumnus of character and consequence, doing great things with Special Olympics of Pennsylvania. Uh, we'll be bringing you a slew of uh, Instagram and other social media posts from the events on Friday. Uh, and then again, from the game on Saturday. But Matt, thank you so much for joining the Sing Second podcast. We can't wait to have you on again. Thanks, John. Uh, we didn't talk about unified sports today, but unified sports pairs our athletes together with individuals without an intellectual disability. We do it a lot in schools. We do it some in the community, uh, but we also do some some fun things with unified. And so uh, I hope that someday maybe I'll be back on the show with you talking about the unified flag football events that we've done with with Navy. And we will be featuring that in Shipmate and Wave Tops and everywhere else. Matt, it's it's just so much goodness. I wish this podcast were an hour and a half long. Uh, but we will have you back on. And more importantly, we'll see you on Friday. Awesome. I can't wait to see you and Jeff soon. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Matt Aaron from the great class of 1988. They just had their 35th reunion here on campus. A bunch of them got to see the new Flugel Alumni Center. Um, and hopefully... Uh, we can get Matt down here to maybe participate with MAG and the Naval Academy as they host their Special Olympics event in the spring. We're going to go to break, ladies and gentlemen. When we come back, we're going to have that interview with Ward Carroll. This is the Swing Second Pop. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back on the Sing Second podcast. Um, I promised you some great interviews in this particular uh, episode of Sing Second. It's here, and my friend, former coworker, former podcast mate, in Ward Carroll. Ward, thank you for being. This is your first time as a guest on Sing Second. You know, you used to be the co-host of Sing Second Sports, but now we're flipping the script and bringing you in as a as a guest. How's it going? It's going well. It's great to be back in any fashion. Um, it's kind of weird to think that I'm a guest and I'm sure the alchemy will not reflect me as guest, but me as just another guy in the conversation here. 
Uh, you are certainly always much more than just the conversation. But, you know, Ward, you know, to introduce the, the listeners a little bit more to you, uh, you come out of the Naval Academy, you're an F-14 uh, guy, had a lot of great experience out there with the likes of Manazer and Carter and, and everyone else. You, you have a very successful career. Uh, come back to the Naval Academy to teach. You wrote some books along the way. Um, eventually retire as an 05, like Chris and I did. That's when all the, the more genius people retire. Uh, eventually went down to Nav Air to work on the Osprey program, worked for military.com and some other journalistic efforts. And now what I'd really like to focus on is your total and utter success as a YouTuber. I know Chris remembers the conversation with you. We, we were about to interview maybe Karen Gabera or, or you know, Joe Amplo or some coach for the Sing Second Sports podcast. And you were just saying, hey, you know, uh, a mentor of mine was telling me about how to you know, get a YouTube channel started. And if you do it right, you can kind of get paid and whoosh. Lo and behold, Ward Carroll, ladies and gentlemen, is sitting at 463,000 subscribers for his YouTube channel. Ward, introduce us to what's going on on this channel. Well, it's a good setup because you framed it just right. It was completely happenstance. Uh, I think, as you guys know, anytime you're trading on, let's just call it public taste. So this is trying to get a podcast up and running, trying to be a sports star like our good friend billy hurley um you know there's highs and lows in fact i think and i've used this analogy a lot trying to be a youtuber trying to be a youtuber is a lot like trying to be a professional golfer in that there's highs and lows you know top 10 finish maybe win the tournament miss the cut miss a few cuts and feel like that's the end of it you know and and then suddenly uh you're you're in the money again so I think the theme, and I forget who I heard say this, it was on the Golf Channel some years ago, but some journeyman pro said, no highs, no lows. Don't, don't fall in love with the big number and don't get bummed out by the little one. And so that's kind of the approach to being a YouTuber. So I wasn't quite an overnight success when we were uh, during COVID and, and doing Sing Second in earnest. Um, I started my channel as a proof of concept for where I was working a day job, which is the Naval Institute of Not-for-Profit on the Yard. And as you mentioned, I had, I have a, a YouTuber friend who is a wildly popular music YouTuber, a guy named Rick Beato, B-E-A-T-O. So if you're a guitarist or a fan of popular music, I highly recommend you subscribe to his channel. But Rick and I became friends through the political sphere. And I was very active on Twitter and writing for Bulwark and Dispatch and and some other things in, in those days. And, and he was a closet politico. He couldn't allow what his political affiliation was because he'd lose 45% of his subscribers. And he's doing music, so it doesn't really matter, right? It's like, who cares what Bono thinks or, you know, whomever. Um, and, and so we started talking. Then he came through Annapolis. He toured the Paul Reed Smith factory over on the Eastern Shore. And we sat down at McGarvey's. And he just says, I don't know. He goes, why don't you have a YouTube channel? Why are you doing so much on Twitter? And I said, well, I don't know. I kind of have this affinity group. And I'm one of the cool kids in in this space with all the, the you know, the Charlie Sykes's and the Amanda Carpenters of the world. Um, 
and and send Bill Crystal and people like that. And I, I sort of was feeling like I'm somebody. And uh, he goes, well, does it monetize? I'm like, no. He's like, well, then what are you doing it for? So he said, just start a channel. I'm like, how do I do it? He goes, well, do you have a phone? I'm like, yeah. It was an iPhone. I think it was an 11 at the time. He goes, just talk on the phone and uh, then post that on YouTube. That was it. That was the only guidance he gave me. So for four months, I was doing all manner of things, kind of like if you follow me on what we now call X, formerly known as Twitter, you know, sometimes I'm riffing on pop culture. Sometimes I'm, you know, criticizing the political sphere. Sometimes it's current events. Um, so that's kind of what I was doing on my YouTube channel. And at the time, I had literally eight subscribers. So it's like, here's what gerrymandering is. Here's how I play hacker guitar. Here's how I got my novel published. You know, here's what happened to the West Point cheating scandal. And that's the first episode that reached over four digits. It, it eclipsed 1,000 views. And I was like, oh, my God, this is gigantic. Right. And so just kept going. And I was really plateaued. I had, you know, 40 views per episode. I was stuck at like 100 subscribers and so forth and so on. Now, in the middle of all of those episodes, I did one called The Truth About the F-14 and Goose's Death where I'm holding this model of an F-14, it's a 148th scale Tomcat model, and talking about the bold-faced steps that the, you know, the mandatory memor, you got to memorize the items checklist that you have to do in the F-14, and in this case, during a flat spin. Like we all know from the first Top Gun, that's what killed Goose. So Goose forgot to do canopy jettison, which I think is step seven, and that's how he hit his head. So I did this episode, and this was Christmas time, 2020, I did this episode. It literally laid flat. I had a couple dozen views. And then on April 18th, 2021, in a single day, it had 95,000 views on one day. And I didn't do anything to affect that. So I call Rick. And I'm like, what is going on? And he said, this is what I told you would happen. The algorithm, not human beings, has kind of had this confluence of Top Gun Maverick trailer, search terms, current events, all this stuff. There's a gaming system called DCS, the Digital Combat Simulator, um, where their fans, those fans are rabid about the F-14. So all of that kind of came together to give me the success. So I said to Rick, what do I do? He goes, well, kill everything that isn't aviation. So that was about 50 episodes. And by kill, it just meant unlist them. Don't delete them. Just make it so if you don't have the URL already, you can't access it. And then start to do more aviation content. He said, is that possible? I'm like, yeah, I got a lot of stories. I could easily do that. In fact, it's, it would be great to have more focus. So that's what I started to do. To do. And, I, and I changed the logo. I, that's where I got the flag uh, in the visor. Uh, logo, which is actually a, a cover of Approach Magazine from 1990, when I was the editor of Approach Magazine, a guy named John Williams, who was a safety center artist who worked on the media side of the house there, did that. Um, and first told all my stories, then got the bubbles together, like Reb Edwards and Scott Kelly and you know all the gang, and, and got them together to, to tell their Tomcat stories. And then my wife, Carrie, actually rightfully asked, so what happens when you run out of stories? I'm like, well, I think the idea is to not to run out of stories, right? Just like with an editorial calendar, like we all know working in, 
and enter the digital media space, you wake up with yeah. a blank, blank canvas, and it's like, what are you going to do today? And so having, as you mentioned, John, I was the editor of Military.com, and We Are the Mighty, and some other military digital media properties, and every day was a new day, you know? And so I know that rhythm, and the only thing that, the only question was, will the audience tolerate me talking about something besides F-14s? And at first, that wasn't clear. So I did a biography of Robin Olds, the famous Air Force uh, ace from World War II and Vietnam. And I did you know, some other history episodes. And I did an analysis of the Kara Hultgreen mishap um, that was my first episode that went over a million views. And so about that same time, I became a YouTube partner which is you have to apply to YouTube and you have to have a baseline. I think it's 4,000 hours watched and some number of subscribers to be eligible. It's kind of like to be eligible to run for president. You have to have so many you know, people sign your petition or whatever. Um, it took seven agonizing weeks for them to approve um, that, that partnership. So I became a YouTube partner. So now you can start making revenue on your episodes. And so even in the face of that, I didn't know if that would be meaningful income, right? I, I had no idea. Um, and so by about month four, um, it, it was more than lunch money. And, you know, like all of us are kindred spirits, none of us really want a day job, right? That's just not how we're wired. Um, <laughs> no, and so if no. you have the opportunity to not have a day job, then you'll take it. You know, so I w went to Pete Daly at the Naval Institute, retired three-star admiral, and the CFO over there, a guy named Chip Wallen, and said, I don't want to be that guy, but I don't need this job. And we need to figure out a graceful sort of, you know, how to land this plane without me burning bridges here because I love the Naval Institute. And so they, they were very cool about it. Um, I, I helped hire my relief, who we, we all know, um, Kelly Welsh. Um, and... Uh, you know, I'm still, uh, you know, able to do, uh, I'm kind of an adjunct over there. I'll moderate panels or whatever. But anyway, I started uh, right after the Taylor Convention last year, not not 2023, but 2022. I, I quit the Naval Institute and started doing YouTube full time. And so, um, you know, it's life without a net. Um, I've had slumps. I, I'm currently in a... In a uh, uh, you're riding a uh, a wave perversely of this war between Israel and Hamas. Um, you know, I, I've done four episodes. Two of them uh, have done more than a million views back to back for the first time that's ever happened. The one that I just launched this morning is is what we call above the line in terms of views. So, um, you know, and this will dissipate and then it'll be like, okay, now what? I try to do two episodes a week. I've had uh, pretty exponential subscriber growth since the summer of 2021. As you mentioned, John, I'm up to 460 something. Um, you don't get another plaque until you hit, yeah, 463. So you got a plaque at 100K, which is uh, on my I Love Me Wall behind me here, which I'm very proud of. And you don't get another one until a million. Um, and, and so I don't see myself well, reaching a million, uh, but I don't know. So anyway, um, I, it's a, it's an amazing thing. You can't, it's one of those things you can't reverse engineer it. You know, you, you can't, I couldn't have imagined this would be my job. And beyond that, I couldn't have imagined how big it has, has gotten, 
you know, and, and so I don't take any of that for granted. Um, it's kind of surreal sometimes when we'll be out and about and people will yell, hey, I love your channel. They'll stop me in traffic. And because um, now I have the family truckster is now a, a, a team vehicle with the logo on the side, um, which happened accidentally. It's a great thing to see in Annapolis, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Hey, Ward, uh, you know, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about being in a, a Naval Academy alum. Um, you, you know, for me personally, you, you're a friend, you're a mentor. Um, and, and I really look to you as somebody that kind of gets what the next thing is going to be, right? I mean, that, that's one of the things that I have always appreciated uh, about you. Um, and then I would, I would just add that you've always been a great storyteller in terms of sharing either your own personal experiences um, or being able to provide context in a way that an audience gets it. How much of that is you that your parents created um, versus how much did you learn that at the Naval Academy, right? We do a good job in the Naval, the larger Naval Academy family of sort of celebrating the traits that make people admirals and, and uh, generals. I don't think we do as good a job of celebrating the traits that make people entrepreneurs and early adopters of technology. And that's, I would consider you um, in both of those categories. So could you talk a little bit about your Naval Academy experience and maybe how that helped you become both an entrepreneur and an early adopter of technology? That's a that's an awesome question. And let let me let me try to answer it holistically. So as I have said, I was raised in a Marine Corps family. My dad went to Michigan State, did not get his degree, by the way, which um this is another beautiful thing about the channel. I sat down with him in, in, in his home in Florida last year, right before my mother passed away, in fact. And her, that was her, the last sort of effort that she made in, in her life was to aggregate all the images uh, that we used in that episode. Um, and we have this cool picture of her sitting next to me, and I'm post-producing it at their kitchen table, and she's just beaming. Um, and, and so in that story, my brothers too had never heard my dad's life in, in sort of in, in order, in chronological order, uh, with great uh, focus on his military, his Marine Corps aviation career. But anyway, he left Michigan State his senior year because his grandfather died, and his grandfather was the guy who was funding his education. We never knew that. So he became a NAVCAD and then a MARCAD, and, uh, you know, eventually... Uh, reached the rank of those six. So obviously that's an influence for me, but he's not a Naval Academy guy. So he's not, you know, doing beat army or anything around the house. But when I was in high school, he was the CEO of VMA All Weather 121, a Marine Corps A6 squadron at Cherry Point. We lived on base at the air station at Cherry Point. And some of his JOs were Academy grads. And we had a sailboat that we used to race across the Moose River. And one guy in particular had been on the sailing team. And obviously when you're a jailer, you're trying to curry favor with the skipper, you know? And so he went sailing with us and he'd tell these cool stories about things that they do at the Naval Academy, you know? And so absent any better ideas, I just started the application process. And that becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, except my SATs weren't high enough to get in out of high school. So I had to go to prep school for a year. I'm a foundation guy back when Emma Laughlin was running the foundation. Now our good friend Don Hughes is doing that job. And uh, that was, in hindsight, the best thing for me. You know, when you're in high school and all your friends are going to UNC or ECU or, you know, 
all kinds of other places, NC State, and you're going to high school again. Uh, it was sort of a letdown. But in hindsight, I'm glad I did. I needed it. So by the time I finished that extra postgraduate year, as they called it, down to Marine Military Academy in Harlingen, Texas, and got to the academy, I was, I was ready. But I had never been to the Naval Academy until I-Day, which in hindsight was a huge leap of faith. Right, with all the programs they have now, summer seminar and, and different sports programs to get blue chip athletes or potential blue chip athletes, you know, assimilated or an idea of what they're getting into. I didn't do any of that. And so I think, Chris, I that leap of faith kind of uh, I was lucky, you know, just like I say when we play golf, it's better to be lucky than good. Um, I was lucky. And so in in the most sort of general way. Being a midshipman, uh, I identified with that. You know, it was noteworthy. Um, and I was really an average, like middle of the class, ranked like 560-something. You know, my cupid was 2.7, you know, all B's in the C kind of thing. I was a poli-sci major. I showed up thinking I wanted to be a naval architecture major because I enjoyed sailing. And they showed me the matrix and all I had Validated was two semesters of French. And so they're like, yeah, you're not going to do naval architecture if you want to graduate. I'm like, well, I do want to graduate. They're like, okay, you know, history, uh, English, or poli-sci. I'm like, well, poli-sci sounds a little more rigorous, so I'll do poli-sci. So anyway, I did that. And I loved doing the mid. I really did. And, you know, our circle of friends there in 21st Company who remained uh, very close to me. My roommate, Rasmussen, is our class secretary. Um, he I, he removed me in that in that role, um, and this is one of the beautiful things about the Naval Academy. We we hype it, but the hype is true. You know that affinity never goes away, and it's intense because we did, you know, come of age, suffer, had challenges that were unique, and we all did that together. Now the other the but I go to the fleet, and I used to take it as a compliment when. You know, a ROTC guy or, you know, some Villanova dude would go, you don't act like an academy guy. And I, I thought that that was kind of a compliment, right? That meant I wasn't a ring knocker and arrogant or whatever else comes with being this stereotype of being a, a graduate of Annapolis. So had this 16 years, basically just flying airplanes. The Navy was very good to me in that I was in fighter squadrons, was the air wing ops office for CAG-1. That's three shots, three bourbons. <laughs> um, but in that capacity, I worked for one Admiral Mike Mullen, later chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who I just did a two and a half hour episode with, which was amazing. If you haven't watched that, please do. Uh, that that was I, I, I'm so glad we were able to get that done because it took many rounds of golf to convince him to do it. But he came into CAG out one day. We were aboard the USS George Washington in the Gulf doing Operation Southern Watch in 1998. And he's like, well, what are you doing for following orders? Now, I had just got off the phone with a guy I just saw at a football game, Fozzie Miller. Fozzie was the 05 detailer. I was a fresh selected 05. I was still wearing 04, but I was an 05. And he said, I think what we're going to do is let you go to Sinkland Fleet for about eight months, write the air refueling plan, and then go right back to ship's company if you want to screen. I'm like, I just did back-to-back sea -back duty. This is what you're going to do? It sounds, that doesn't sound like a good deal. He goes, yeah, this is how you get to make 06 if you kick ass on ship's company. And that really didn't appeal to me because if I was going to be like strike ops, then the CAG ops 
would be like in my face, like I was for the for Woody, who was the strike ops there on GW. And I, I I didn't want that to be the case. So, but that was looking like what it was. Alan Mullen comes in and he's like, what are you going to do? I said, here's what Fozzie told me. And he walks away and comes back in with a yellow sticky with a 410293XXXX number. I call it Captain Bill Mason, pro dev, answers the phone. And he's a member of the Black Shoe Mafia. Um, and of which Emma Mullen was a captain, not quite the Don yet. I think Vern Clark was still the Don of the Braxton Mafia at that time. Um, but he's like, hey, I really want to teach at the Naval Academy. I'm like, um, I do. Well, what am I going to teach? He's like, we're going to do this ethics course that we teach youngsters, and I need you to run the company officer master's program. The guy who was in charge of leadership, ethics, and law, another Tomcat rear named, named Mark Clemente, was holding that wreck you know, closed and kind of half-assed doing that job off the side of his desk. And they wanted to make sure they got the right guy. And it turns out I was the right guy. So the wreck was freed up. I called Fossey. He's like, I don't know what you did, but I got orders for you to the Naval Academy now. And he was he was very cool because he said, I was just going to do 24 months, but because you did back-to-back CVD, I'll write you 36-month orders. So boom, I'm headed to the Naval Academy. Okay, so further, my CAG, C.T. Cunningham, was a super cool guy. So I have to be there in, and this is what Clem tells me, you got to be here in August to start to do the training to learn how to teach the ethics course. Um, and I'm like, well, I, that's a problem because I can't get there until November. He's like, well, that's a problem. So I went to CAG. I go, can I have no-cost TAD orders for six months? And because we'd just gotten back from deployment, he's like, yeah, sure. So that was a super cool thing. So I moved up to Annapolis by myself, living in the BQ, which is now the Navy Lodge, right above um, the old club. And I lived there for the entire month of August in 1998. Okay, so as I mentioned, this is all a lead up for my my epiphany, um, my catharsis here. Um, and And so I'm learning how to teach the ethics course, met the dean, the dean Miller was like, um, and I, he goes, well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a freelance uh, journalist. I do this and this. He goes, well, you should teach plebe English. I'm like, is that possible? He goes, yeah, go talk to Tim O'Brien, not the author Tim O'Brien, but the guy who's the department chair, Tim O'Brien. And so I go to see Tim and he's like, what are your influences? I was like, you know, Vonnegut and Kerouac and Crane. And he's like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you could teach plebe English. I'm like, man, this place is awesome. They love people who say yes. You know, so I'm not in the English department, but I get to teach plebe English. And you start signing up for the OREP of this and, you know, sponsor these meds and teach this course. And all of a sudden your dance card is very full, but in beautiful, cool ways. All right. So that was happening. And then as soon as it would get to be 1500, I'd yabba dabba do across the river to the golf course and play until the sun went down. I'd grab a subway sub. That, that subway isn't there anymore uh, across from the commissary, come back to the BOQ, eat my subway, and then I would wander the yard after dark with a little plastic cup of single malt and an Ashton cigar. So I am doing this. It's about 2100, you know, sort of a, a quiet summer night. I'm sitting on first-class bench, and you guys can see it in your mind's eye. Two cores are washing light. It's quiet because all the poops are in bed. And I'm smoking this Ashton and, and I'm feeling no pain with this single malt. And it suddenly hit me like a bolt of lightning. I love this place. 
And it is me. I've been holding it at arm's length, but it is totally me. And that was such a beautiful, I can, I can feel it even now. So the Navy that was very good to me in every way gave me this final gift, which was I was allowed to teach at the Naval Academy as my last tour on active duty. And that was as much me learning as it was me teaching the various classes. And I, I taught all four classes while I was there. I was the OF for the Dooming team, which was my sport, with my coach, Pat Healy. And also I took over the flying team. Admiral Ryan had bought two Cessna 172 SPs that they still have parked at Lee Field. Um, and so it was just a gift. We lived on the yard in those little bungalows that aren't occupied anymore, which breaks my heart. I guess they can't afford to keep those up. And so I could walk to work. The boys went to naps across the river. Um, Carrie was active in various wives things and, and other enterprises and being active at naps as one of the moms. And so it was a really cool time. Further, I finished, I didn't start, but I finished Punk's War, my debut novel. And ultimately it was published by the Naval Institute while I was still on active duty. And that changed the trajectory of my post-Navy life in a very uh, defined way. So um, the Naval Academy is the fabric of me, but I think that's a two-way street in that um, I haven't bought it lock, stock, and barrel. You know, I think this iconoclastic thing is what has been my success against the backdrop, backdrop of a regimented place like the Naval Academy and the Navy. Because, you know, civilians who, are, who don't understand it like think we're all Gomer Pyle. Like we live in a Quonset hut and it's, it's all like, you know, marching and saluting and, and it's, it's, you, you, there's no place for critical thinking or free thought. And we all know that that's wrong. Um, now, there are limits to it, but, you know, in, in my case, that allowed me to thrive. It was also a tension point at times, depending on who I was working for. Fortunately, in two cases, I worked for fantastic leaders who, you know, saved my bacon at various times. One was Admiral Les, Tony Les who was Airland when I needed a, a little, uh, you know, boost and, and I got it. And that's what got me the, the desired department head orders. And then the final one was Admiral Mullen. Um, and uh, so, you know, him putting his finger on the scale and getting me to the Naval Academy when I had no portfolio that said that should be the case uh, made all the difference. And, and I dare say I, I was able to uh, mentor and influence mids in a, in a good way. Um, there aren't very many tactical aviators uh, that, that are on the yard even now. You know, if you see a, a superhunter Wizzo, not to mention a pilot, that's sort of a rarity. I think most of the, the naval aviators are either pretty or 860 uh, folks. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but there, there isn't a whole lot of jet representation. And that was the case back in the late 90s or the aughts as well. So I very much played myself on trying to motivate mids uh, to make the choice of naval aviation. And, uh, you know, so um, I, I think this has been, uh, you know, I'm very proud of being a Naval Academy graduate. I think the, the, what's beautiful about living in Annapolis is I'm still part of this community. Um, you know, as you guys know, my wife works at the Naval uh, Academy Alumni Association. Uh, and, and so between me still kind of being in touch with the Naval Institute and her working at the Alumni Association, and me holding the down box on the home sideline and so forth and so on. We, we kind of still are, you know, we have a finger on the pulse of the Naval Academy. Uh, that's what I loved about doing the sink second, especially during the winter when we do the basketball games. Um, you know, we, 
it, it just felt like we were part of it, you know, and, and, and I'm here to tell the, the alums who are maybe a little bit suspicious or a little bit accusing um, the current military of being, I'll cringe and use the word woke or whatever to, you know, take a breath and plug in and you will see that in my view, it's better than ever. Resources, outlook, meds are up and locked in a way that I never was, quite frankly. You know, I was like, if we can leave, I'm on my way to Hood College. Um, they're not like that here. They, they they circle back and they stay stick around and they do the extracurricular after hours stuff. I noticed because I ran the internship program at the Naval Institute, and we also have an ECA there called The Profession, which is kind of a JV proceedings magazine, and they are plugged in in a way that I never was. They are they know where they're headed, and they're they're motivated to 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 do so. And 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 so, you know, the current acting soup is a good friend of mine. Uh, Admiral Kacher, and, and uh, you know, he's on his way at any moment. He'll go to be seven three. Um, and uh, but I'm able to connect with him, and uh, you know, just like Admiral Bunt did a fantastic job, and as we know intimately, especially John knows intimately, Admiral Carter did a fantastic job. Um, the place is in great shape, and it does my heart good to, to see it, and 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 just to still be able to be here to live in a college town, not to mention the Naval Academy in Annapolis is is a complete gift. So. That's a long answer, Chris, um, but the, it, it did define me ultimately, and I have no regrets about that. I, I, I wear that clothing uh, openly. Well, Ward, I'll tell you what, we, we so much appreciate what you've done for your alma mater. Again, you know, I'm not just trying to fluff your bag, to use my favorite uh, terminology, but you know, everything from giving back to you know, teaching Fleeb English we all know that Bruce Fleming learned everything that that he uh, that he preaches and practices from you um, to working the yardsticks at the football game. And then, um, you know, obviously everything you've done as a as a journalist, as an author and now a YouTuber. Um, we so appreciate having you on the podcast and we we absolutely love the content, love what you've done as a grad. Please let the Naval Academy Alumni Association and Foundation know what we can do for you in the future. And thank you for what you do. Well, it's great to see you there, John, and this sort of uh, product as part of the, the media and communication suite is is the way you're wired. So uh, I'm proud of what you're doing over there and I uh, look forward to helping any way I can going forward. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Ward Carroll, class of 82, one of my favorite people around. Uh, please check out his band, check out his YouTube channel, search Ward Carroll on YouTube. Be among the 436 or 463,000 subscribers and get the content because honestly, and not just being a sycophant here, it's super duper good. We're going to go to break. Stick with us. This is Sing Second. All right, we're back. Um, Chris, it's been a great pod. Love talking to Matt Aaron. I'm really looking forward to getting back up to going over this weekend. And Ward Carroll is just... He's Ward Carroll, and I have no doubt that that YouTube channel is going to have like 10 million followers uh, before too long. Um, but before we go, a little bit of news for you here. Um, as we release this pod on Thursday, just today, uh, some news on the yard, uh, in case you didn't see the press release. You all know that there was a congressional mandate to change Confederate names across the uh, DOD. Um, it's been happening. There's now Fort Eisenhower. Um, you know, we changed Maury Hall to Carter Hall on the yard. Buchanan House has now become Farragut House. 
And ladies and gentlemen, just today it was announced that the very final renaming that was taking place at the Naval Academy was Buchanan Road. There was Buchanan House, and then right outside of Buchanan House was Buchanan Road. And that was just renamed today as Calvert Road, named after James F. Calvert. He was the uh, superintendent, the 46th superintendent, from July 1968 to June of 1972. He retired as a vice admiral. Um, like any good yeah, shipmate, he was a uh, SWO, commanded the USS Trigger, USS Skate, Cruiser Destroyer Flotilla 8. That's how long ago he was serving. We called him Flotillas, which I think is pretty badass still. Uh, and he's a 2004 Distinguished Graduate. Uh, so that is your up-to-the-minute gouge on what's going on on the yard. Um, Chris, over to you for your final thoughts. Well, John, I was um, happy to hear that Sing Second Street was the backup name. Um, you, you know, we, we finished second in the polling. So, uh, yeah, still, silver medalist isn't bad. Yeah. Is like so, so, still hopeful that if uh, we decide to kick anybody else uh, off the street sign, that maybe Sing Second Street, uh, you know, gets picked in the future. Uh, we're talking to you, Carlos Del Toro. So, you know, keep that in mind. It's got a nice ring to it. Uh, also, speaking of Sing Second, uh, I posted on our uh, Instagram page uh, a picture of I got the uh, sweetener Sing Second hat in the mail finally. Um, so that was kind of cool. What a great hat. It's got uh, roll goats on it. It's got the goat on the front. It says sweetener on the side and Sing Second. So, uh, you know, it's not too early or too late, depending on uh, how you've done your shopping to get those. They make a great Army, Navy or Christmas present. Go to the sweetener page and you can see those. I also think we have links on our uh, Instagram as well. So, yeah, uh, that, that's really uh, all I have. Go Navy, beat Temple. And, uh, John, we'll see you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, for Chris Trevello, I am John Schofield. Thank you to Ward Carroll. Thank you to Matt Aaron. Thank you to you, the listeners. And thank you to ProMD Health in Annapolis, our sponsor. If you'd like to sponsor the Sing Second Podcast, hit us up on Instagram, Twitter, or anywhere where you can find our uh, information on the dark interwebs. I am John Schofield. This has been a great episode of Sing Second Podcast. We'll see you next week. We are out.